Good morning. Peace be with you. Great to be with you this morning. After being several years from the beginning of Sojourn East, uh, one with you here, um, still one with you, but uh, in a different location. Uh, I'm serving as one of the pastors uh, at Midtown Campus, and so visiting over from there, it's great to be back at East this morning. I want us to think about something that has changed in our world. Uh, I want to look back at a time, 1891. 1891, there was a man named Charles Dudley Walker, and he set out from Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, on a two-day journey at that time by stagecoach, and that journey took him to the Grand Canyon. And he was in there with that stagecoach with several other people in the stagecoach together, and when they neared the canyon, they stepped out of that stagecoach, and they walked the last part of their journey as they went up, up, and then came to the edge of the Grand Canyon. Now, here's how Warner described what happened when they reached the edge of the canyon. He said, two or three of us reached the edge and the Duchess threw up her arms and screamed at the sight. We took the few steps and the whole magnificence broke upon us. No one could be prepared for it. One person stood in silent astonishment. Another burst into tears. I experienced for a moment an indescribable terror of nature, a confusion of mind, a fear to be alone in such a presence. Now fast forward to about the year 2000. And I remember I was a youth minister at that time and I took a group of youth through the painted desert and through some of those beautiful areas of Arizona. And at one point we were looking out on this and one of the students who was playing a computer game at the time looked up and said, we drove all this way to see rocks and dirt. Now, as I compare those two things, what I realize is this. Our world has changed since 1891 when he saw the Grand Canyon. You see, people by the millions still make the journey to the Grand Canyon every single year, and yet I think you will rarely see any of the things that he described, the people around him, silent awe, terror, tears. But it's not the Grand Canyon that's changed. It's us. We've changed. We have changed, and I think it is at least in part because we are deluged with distractions like no generation before us. There are always a constant stream of new images and new devices that never ends, and we have become so visually stimulated that we are numbed and dulled to authentic wonder. 20 years ago, a comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes, they got it. They saw what happens in our world. Let's take a look at one of these. That cloud of stars is our galaxy, the Milky Way. Our solar system is on the edge of it. We hurl through incomprehensible blackness. In cosmic terms, we are subatomic particles on a grain of sand on an infinite beach. I wonder what's on TV now. Another one, same location, outside, looking up at the stars. Look at all the stars. The universe just goes out forever and ever. Kind of makes you wonder why man considers himself such a big screaming deal. That's why we stay inside with our appliances. You see, when we're sovereign over our screens, we can feel like we can have the delusion that we are in control and we can be fed a constant stream of images. And sure, we can get excited about things, a viral tweet, a new video on YouTube, but then it's followed by another and another and another and another until all sense of wonder has become numbed. And I'm not claiming, and I'm not wanna suggest, don't hear me saying technology is wrong. That's not the point at all. 
I simply want us to see how this unending stream of pixels and products and virtual realities that seem more real than reality itself can kill our capacity for real wonder and awe. Here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to recognize that we live in a world that is glutted with superficial pleasures and yet starving for authentic awe. And what I'd like us to do is start on a journey of sorts toward developing a sense of authentic, godly wonder and awe in our lives. Now, we're going to start that in a place that may be unexpected. See, to begin this journey, we're going to begin with Paul's letter to the Ephesians and a phrase that Paul says there where he says, for this reason, I fall to my knees before the Father. Now, we usually think of bowing to the knees and bowing as a position of prayer. It's what we often think of, and it was for Paul in this. But it was also because of the wording that's used there about falling to his knees. It seems to be an expression of awe and wonder and surrender. And so what is it that drove Paul to his knees in Ephesians chapter 3? Well, it wasn't a miraculous vision. It wasn't a voice from heaven. Paul had experienced all those things. It was something that may seem very mundane and may frustrate us at times. It is something that is experienced by billions of people around the world every day. And yet it drove Paul to his knees in awe and in prayer. And what I want us to do is look at this passage and at the book of Ephesians as a whole and to find out what it was that awakened such wonder in the Apostle Paul. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Ephesians 3, 14. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy word. Paul says there, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family, or we could translate that every fatherhood, in heaven and on earth is named. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would indeed this day tear through our dulled senses and open within us a sense of authentic wonder and awe at the things that you have done, that though they may seem ordinary, are truly full of the splendor of your very spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul begins this with the words, for this reason, which seems to refer back to what he said earlier. So if we're going to understand what he was meaning when he said, for this reason, I fall to my knees, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, we need to look back at what he's already said and at what life was like in the, in, in the city of Ephesus. Now, in a very real sense that the book of Ephesus is a true tale of two temples, a true tale of two temples. is how I would characterize the book of Ephesus and the Ephesian church. You see, the people in the Ephesian church, they were people who had been brought together, who had once worshiped in two very different temples. 
Now, the first of these two temples was one in the city of Ephesus, near the center of the city. And remember at this time, Ephesus is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It's a massive city. It's one that to this very day has only been about 15% excavated to this day. And near the center of that city was the temple of Diana or Artemis. It was the central uh, kind of attraction in the entire city. It had been built more than 600 years earlier, and it was something that drew people from all around. This was a temple that was held up by 121 pillars. People traveled from miles around. There were yearly parades celebrating uh, this temple where people purchased all sorts of silver images of Diana or Artemis from this temple. It was the pride of the city of Ephesus. We see that a few years earlier, something that had happened is some citizens of a nearby city called Sardis had defiled some objects that were dedicated to the goddess Artemis, and they killed them, 45 of them. They executed them. They took their temple extremely seriously. Now, given that, it shouldn't surprise us something that had happened about 10 years before Paul wrote this letter. Paul was in the city of Ephesus and he began proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as Paul is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, people begin to turn away from idols, away from temples, and they begin to turn to Jesus Christ. And suddenly the people in Ephesus become angry because their temple is being threatened at this point. In fact, they kind of reveal their feelings about the temple when they say at one point in Acts chapter 19, we are afraid that that the temple of Artemis will somehow be counted as nothing. And there's a riot at this time. So that's one of the temples. The people in the city of Ephesus had worshiped the Gentiles in the city of Ephesus at this temple, this temple of Artemis. But as I said, it's a true tale of two temples. The other temple is the one in Jerusalem. Ephesus also had a significant Jewish population. And the significant Jewish population in the city of Ephesus, they would gather together in synagogues around the city of Ephesus, but they would also make a yearly trip, at least once a year, to the city of Jerusalem, where they would worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, remember that the Jews were those people that God had preserved for the purpose of bringing Jesus into the world. And Jesus had fulfilled all the promises, all the things in the Old Testament that God had given to them. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem, they would go there at least once a year. And a few decades before Paul had ever showed up in Ephesus, Herod the Great, that same Herod the Great who killed the infants when Jesus, soon after Jesus was born and a couple of years after Jesus was born, that same Herod the Great, that one, he actually launched a renovation project of this temple in Jerusalem and turned it into one of the most dazzling buildings in the entire region. And each year, faithful Jews from Ephesus and elsewhere, they would go there for the Jewish Passover and perhaps other feasts as well. But in Ephesus, what we find in that city is that there were tensions between the Jews and the non-Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles. It was a city that was filled with racial tension between these people whose lives were turned toward two different temples. Because you see, the Jewish religion, it seems so strange to the people who weren't Jews. Because for example, the Jews believed in one God and everybody else in their right mind in the ancient world, they covered all their bases with more than one God. But also the Jews, they didn't have any statues or any images of their God. Everybody else had images and statues of their gods. 
And not only that, the, the Jews, they circumcised their males. And the Greeks and the Romans, that was not their custom. And so the Jews had nothing to do with the Gentiles. The Gentiles, nothing to do with the Jews. But then about 10 years earlier, Paul shows up preaching the gospel, proclaiming that God was making the world right with himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as he preached this good news, Jews and Gentiles both responded. Now remember, these people didn't have any interaction with each other in Ephesus. And yet they both responded. So what we see happening is that as they respond to the gospel, the result is that people of the world, that their world would never have dreamt of putting together are suddenly sharing their lives. The same scriptures, the same cup, the same loaf, the same waters of baptism. Now that sounds really great, but remember something else. Paul left the city of Ephesus the day after the riot. He got out of town, okay? Paul left the city of Ephesus the day after the riot. And 10 years later, when he writes this letter, all is not well at Ephesus Community Church. You see, many of the Jews in that church, they still kept the food laws of the Old Testament, still kept some of the other uh, laws of the Old Testament. And so they began, which was all well and good for them, but then they began telling the Gentile believers, if you really love Jesus, you're gonna keep these laws too. You keep these laws too. If you really love Jesus, if you really believe in Jesus, you're going to keep these laws that God had given to Israel to distinguish them from other nations. You're gonna keep them. And so the Gentiles were being told that they had to keep all the laws of the Old Testament to really be serious about their Christian faith. And so we can imagine the scene here at a membership class. A Jew says to a Gentile, for example, men, if you really want to follow Jesus, there's a little outpatient procedure that we are going to include in membership class. And the Gentiles say, well, there's some fine print Paul never told us about. Why don't you have some of this amazing bacon to calm you down? And the Jews are like, you keep your pork away from our potlucks. And the Gentiles are like, you keep your pocket knives away from our loincloth. And the church is about to split at this point. The church is about to fall apart at this point. And Paul writes this letter for the purpose of pulling these people back together. Now, to do that, he uses imagery that these people in their day knew very, very well. It was the image of temples. So let's look at chapter 2. We're going to back up a little bit and look at verse 17 of chapter 2 to help us understand what it is that Paul is driven to his knees in awe and wonder about. Verse 17. Paul says, when Christ, or the Messiah, same, same uh, word, just uh, different translations of it. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, this whole building being put together by him is growing up into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Understand this. If Paul had perceived the purpose of the church as making life easy or fitting in with its culture, do you know what Paul would have said? 
all right, let's just set up two different churches in Ephesus. We'll just set up two completely different churches. Jews, you can go over here. You don't have to worry about pork at your potlucks. Gentiles, you can go over here. You don't have to worry about any scalpels at membership class. So they just split. Just everybody go different places. But Paul does not even seem to entertain such a notion. And it's for one reason. He does it because Jesus is enough. That's the simple truth he's trying to get, is that Jesus is enough. And because Jesus is enough, nothing needs to be added to what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Everything that God demands, he has already delivered in Jesus, and there's nothing else to be added. And because of that, what he's communicating to them is that your unity is not a goal that you have to achieve. It is a gift that you receive because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so he spells this out for them clearly. He says, first off, you were once strangers. You were once outsiders. And now he says, you are citizens with the saints. You are citizens with the saints. And what he's saying in that is not saints in the sense we often hear and think about today, somebody canonized by the church. The truth is, according to Scripture, everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, who has therefore been declared holy by God, is a saint. I'm Saint Timothy. Isn't that amazing? Saint Timothy, Saint Nora, Saint Brian, Saint all of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. He's saying everybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ, a saint. And you have been declared to be a saint and citizens. Not only that, you're part of God's household, he says. That is to say, sons and daughters of God, a temple for the Spirit of God. Then he moves on and he says, you're being built together into a holy sanctuary, a temple for God himself to dwell in. Now let's pause there and think for just a moment. Do you realize that the same Holy Spirit that brooded over the waters and then through whom God brought creation into existence the same Holy Spirit that overshadowed the Old Testament tabernacle, the same Holy Spirit that worked within the womb of Mary to bring Jesus into this world, the same Spirit that descended on Jesus at his baptism, that same Spirit is present in and among you if you're believers in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. But the same Spirit brooded over the waters in the beginning through whom God breathes creation into existence is present and available to us today. And when Paul starts using this temple language about this building of a sanctuary, his point is, is that you can't be divided because God himself has woven you together by his spirit. You once worshiped in two different temples, but God has now put you together in one temple. Not a temple made with human hands, but a temple built of flesh and blood and filled by his spirit. You, the people of God, you are God's temple. And this temple that he describes here, that God is building in human flesh and filling with his spirit, this temple is the church, the visible expression of God's plan for the ages. And the beauty of this community that brings together people that the world would never have brought together, that is the reality that brings Paul to his knees. In fact, he can't even finish the next sentence he starts. Look at chapter three, verse one. 
Paul says there, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then boom, he goes off on a total squirrel moment for about 13 verses at this point. He doesn't even finish his own sentence. It's a spirit-inspired squirrel moment. No, no, doubt me. But, but it's just still a squirrel moment. He goes off and doesn't finish his sentence. He doesn't get back to his sentence until verse 14. Because what he does then is he exalts in, he rejoices in how God kept this glorious, this glorious coming together of Jews and Gentiles, a mystery for so, so long. And then he returns to it. And he finally finishes his sentence in verse 14 when he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. That's when he finishes it. And he goes on to say, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family or every fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named, derives its name. Now, what does this mean? This says every family in heaven and on earth has its name from God the Father, has its identity from God the Father. Here's what I think he's trying to get at that every structure of fatherhood and family, no matter how broken and how twisted, derives whatever is good in it from the fatherhood of God. Whatever is good. Think about for a moment what he's saying. In every family, in every fatherhood, there is some echo of God's goodness and God's plan. I spent eight, eight and a half years serving in a church, very difficult area, very rough area of, of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, never were more than three blocks at the church from at least one meth house that was in operation that everybody knew was there. Um, and on Wednesday nights, we would feed children. Uh, send, and we would have hundreds, literally, of children and youth who would come on Wednesday nights, probably for their only meal in the week that they sat down at a table with a plate and were fed. That's the, the situation we were in. Spent a lot of time in a lot of households that were seriously messed up households. Done funerals for an eight-year-old and a, for a, an infant that didn't even have to, it didn't have to happen that way. But even in those messed up homes that I spent week after week ministering in, here's something I found. When you'd start to talk to that mom and dad and really talk to them, even in the most horribly twisted households, they longed for a family filled with fellowship and love. Even if they were making choices that actually accomplished the opposite of what they longed for, and many times they were, they longed for that. They longed for a family of fellowship and love. Why? Well, it's because there is no one whose soul does not yearn for the fellowship and the family for which God formed us. We can't escape this creation in our image of a God from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its identity. And you may have come from a horrifically twisted home, but know this, every dream you had for something better was a signpost in the midst of that brokenness pointing to a father who loves you and does not want to let you go. Every family in heaven and on earth, longings fulfilled. What's this, what's this supposed to mean for us? That these longings are supposed to be fulfilled in the family of faith. Those longings are supposed to be at least partly fulfilled 
in the church, in the family of faith. And so what does this mean? How do we do this? How do we become this family in which God is working in such a way to bring to fruition, to bring to realization these empty parts and these longings that people have for family and for fellowship? Well, here's my hope, is that we have such a love for one another here that when somebody who is broken and feels their brokenness walks into this building or visits a community group, they say something to this effect. This that I'm seeing here, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been wanting. Not because we get everything perfect, we don't, but because we love one another and we care for the broken and we welcome the wandering. You know, I even want people who don't even believe in Jesus, who have completely rejected him, I want them to say something to the effect that I can't stand what they believe and preach there, but I wish I had the love that I see there. That's what I want to happen in our churches because recognize this, the human means that God uses to bring people to faith isn't primarily a bunch of arguments. Those are all supplemental. The primary human means that God uses to attract people to the faith is the gospel spoken and lived and loved in the church. That's how God brings people to himself. And there is no human soul that does not long for this communion of welcome and care. And that's what God is forming among us here. Let's go on to verse 16. In verse 16, he moves then from, from basically saying a praise to saying a prayer. And he says in verse 16, I pray that God may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit and that the Messiah, Christ, may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he moves here completely from this metaphor of family over to a metaphor of a temple, the temple of all those who have trusted Christ from every tribe and ethnicity and nation. And I want you to notice something here. The measure of this temple's dimensions is all the saints. Not some of the saints, not even most of the saints. But he says here in verse 18, all the saints. You and I do not get to determine the dimensions of God's temple. God determines the dimensions for his temple of flesh and blood filled with spirit through what he has done in Christ and declared through his word. All the saints. Here's the fact. No matter who we are and how holy we may look on the outside, there are some people that we think the church could probably just do without. Now, be honest about it. There's some people that you're thinking, you know what, the church could probably do without this person or that person. But consider this. God is the master builder of this temple. 
and he brings together in this place the people who are needed to accomplish what he has planned. And if we look at ourselves or we look at others and we say, we don't need them or we don't need me, what we're saying is, God, when it comes to the building of your temple, you didn't know what you were doing. We've been for about eight or nine years now in a renovation project on our house, little by little by little, getting a renovation project done. And I don't know a huge amount about building, but I have learned one important thing. There are certain beams and boards you can't move. Because you say to the builder, why don't we do this? Why don't we set this here and move this over here? And he will say something to the effect of, no, that's a load-bearing wall. You can't move that or the whole thing comes down. Brothers and sisters, you are all load-bearing beams. We can't pull out any of you that are part of the body of Christ, that have trusted in Christ, that are part of this church without damaging the whole. We need one another in the body of Christ. You're all load-bearing beams. You all matter. You all have a place here. You are here for a purpose and you have a place and your presence matters. How do we live that out? I think if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here, one of the things you can do, jump into membership. That's one of the ways that you declare, I recognize I have a purpose and a place here. And if you're a member here and you aren't sure where you fit here, here's a really brilliant recommendation for you. Serve somewhere. And if that doesn't work and you're not good at that, serve somewhere else. And if that one doesn't work, serve somewhere else and keep serving until you find the place that God has for you. Serve. You're load-bearing, you're needed, you matter in this place. And another way I think that we can live this out is by encouraging one another. How often do we really say to somebody, you're really good at that, I appreciate you, I'm thankful for you. We don't say that a lot. And yet that's part of us recognizing that everyone, all the saints, really matter. And that brings us to the last part of this text. And in this text, Paul makes the craziest claim that he makes in any of his letters, and he makes this claim about the church. Here, verses 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul's made a lot of crazy statements in his letters. We're made right with God through a crucified teacher. That this crucified teacher came out of the tomb alive and well and showed himself to be the king of all human history. Crazy statements. That the gospel is big enough to bridge racial and ethnic divisions. A crazy statement. But this one is the craziest in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. And you may be thinking, what is so crazy about that? Think with me for a moment about the status of the church at this time. A sociologist named Rodney Stark has estimated the number of Christians in the world around this time. There were fewer than 8,000 Christians in the entire world. Somewhere around, if we put all of our campuses together, two of sojourn is about the number of Christians there were in the whole world at this time. That's one one-hundredth of one percent of the population of the empire. 
Christians had no temples. They had no church buildings. They were facing persecution, and it was about to get worse. Their top church planter, Paul, is writing this from house arrest in Rome. Within a decade, Peter and Paul will both be dead. Christianity is on the wrong side of history, as Paul writes. Now, worship of Artemis, that's a religion that's going to last. It's got a temple at the center of the city. That temple is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People come from all over to, to see this temple. That, that's a religion that, that's going to last. The sacrifices in Jerusalem, at the temple in Jerusalem, this newly renovated temple that Herod started, that, whoa, that, those sacrifices in that temple, those, that's a religion that's going to last. But the future for Christian faith is far from bright. And yet Paul says that God will be working in the church here throughout all generations forever and ever. I mean, Paul doesn't even think that, that, that the church might fade away and then it'll come back at the end of time. That's not even what Paul thinks. He says through every generation forever and ever. This is idiocy. But it's also true. Remember that temple to Artemis I mentioned? Do you know what remains of that temple to this day? One pillar out of 121 pillars. Anybody know anybody that's going to the first church of Artemis today? Not a real popular religion either. One pillar remains. Temple in Jerusalem gets even worse. Nothing of that temple remains. All there is left there from that time period is one Western retaining wall of the mount. But what about the temple described here that God is building in flesh and spirit and filling the flesh and blood and filling with his spirit? What about this one? Well, look to your left. Everybody, look, look to your left. Look to your right. All right? That temple's still there. That temple is still here. And not only that, recognize you're not alone. That right now, as we gather, there are billions of people around the world that will gather for word and sacrament just as we are this Sunday to hear the word of God, to celebrate the sacraments together. They will just like us all the way around the world. The temple that God was building of people still remains. 2,000 years later. Now, even in our nation, there will come a day most likely when the Washington Monument is nothing more than an ugly spike standing over a fallen republic. All the monuments we see in our nation's capital, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, they will be crumbled in the dust. And America will fall like every kingdom before and after. But even then, the temple that God is building will remain throughout every generation forever and ever. Paul saw God's work in the church and it drove him to his knees in awe of what God had done. So what do we do with this? Three simple things I want you to do with what we've understood and heard from this text. First off, because we're a family, welcome every person as a gift. 
because we're a family, recognize and welcome every person here as a gift. Think of the sheer amazing miracle that you are here right now. Just in your mind for a moment, trace the path that brought you here through a trillion tiny decisions that you don't even remember. Think about the fact that you have gone through places so dark that you did not know you would ever get out of them. But you did. Here you are. You're here in this place. And now think of the people around you. Each of them, no less than you, came through that trail of a trillion tiny decisions. And here you are. And each one has their own story and their own dark, awful places and the moments they thought they couldn't make it. But here we are. We're here in this place together, and it's a miracle. And even as we gather behind the masks that we put on, there are people who are wrestling and struggling with the flapping of the wings of every demon they've known, and they feel it, and aren't sure what to do, and aren't sure where to share their story, and how to share it, and who can help. How do we break down those barriers? Learn to welcome one another as gifts from God. I just want to encourage one thing, one simple thing. Today, make a connection with one person that you wouldn't have made otherwise. Just one. One person. Find one person and notice something they do well and say so. Compliment them. Recognize somebody that you don't really know their story and make space in your life this week to spend time with them and hear their story. Or it may even be something as simple as saying, no, seriously, really, how are you doing? How are you? But connect with somebody in a way that recognizes you are a gift purchased by the blood of Christ and placed here by the will of God the Father and filled with the Spirit that draws us together. Second thing, because we're a temple, don't forget we need each other. As I said earlier, we don't go pulling around building blocks out of a temple because of the fact that a temple is built in such a way that, that in that temple, all of the parts of it are necessary, this temple God is building. Recognize we need each other. We live in a world today where so many people say something to the effect of, I like Jesus, but not the church. And when you hear that, first off, remember this. Many times when somebody says that, it's because they have been hurt deeply by Christians. And sometimes the best thing you can say to them is tell me about it. And to be able to say to them, wow, that's awful. And I'm really, really sorry. So sorry that that happened. How can I walk with you through that? So many times people say that, and that's really what's underneath, is they've been hurt deeply. But sometimes people say that because of the fact that they really just kind of want to have their own personal Jesus that they set to the side, and they're able to have it in their image and not have to deal with the muck and the mess of the real people of God in a real place. But church is not an option you choose to add to your Christian life. The church is a visible expression of God's work in the world, and you can't do the Christian life alone any more than you can get married alone. 
And oddly enough, when I looked that up on the internet, that quote to make sure I was saying it right, what I found out is there are people who are trying to get married alone. It's called sologamy, sologamy, and people are getting married to themselves at that point. Now, and the sad part of the interviews with them was, as I was just reading these interviews, was what they were wanting is somebody to affirm and love them as they were. Wow. To the point of saying, I'm going to just marry me. When you have a fight with your spouse, I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't know how any of it works. How was the honeymoon? I, I don't know. It's just strange, but it shows the world we live in, in which people desperately need a love and an affirmation. Because all ultimately, it's not people that are crazy as much as the people that are broken and need deeply the love and the affirmation of a community and people who are around them who love them. When we do life in the church, we're forced to face that the Christian life is complex and messy, and yet we need the people around us to experience the fullness of God's work in the world. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He described when he first became a Christian. And he said, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought I could do this on my own by going to my room and reading theology. I wouldn't go to the churches. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw merit in it. I came up against people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which really were fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music, were still being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then I realized I wasn't even fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. That's what it does. It gets us out of our solitary conceit. And when we realize how deeply we need one another, it causes us to guard the unity of the church. Now, we typically don't split anymore over pork and shellfish and circumcision, but we do struggle with issues among us of unity, politics, parenting, organic foods, schooling choices. We can get really passionate about some of those things. And when we recognize we actually need one another, when you recognize that, you recognize that unity matters deeply and to seek unity on what is essential, but then to be able to laugh at ourselves and rejoice in the differences of what isn't. I ask it this way. Do you remember that when you speak about the people in your church and speak about your church, you're talking about the bride of Christ. Now think about this. How would you feel if somebody spoke about your spouse the way you speak about your church? But you haven't died for your spouse. Jesus has died for his church, his bride. How are you speaking about your church? And so I just want to encourage you this simple encouragement. This week, sometime when you would have spoken negatively or divisively or, or expected to somebody to conform to your standards on a secondary issue, instead speak about your brothers and sisters as if they're the bride of Christ, as if they're the temple of God, because they are. They are. The last admonishment I want to 
to press forward for you is because God himself fills this temple, practice awe when we're together. Because the spirit of God himself fills this temple, not this building, but you and me, the people of God, practice awe when we gather. When you enter this fellowship together, you're not showing up at a social gathering. You are part of an uprising against all the powers of heaven and earth that want to strip our souls of wonder and awe. That's what you're part of. How do we recover that sense of wonder and awe? Practice it every week here. Practice it. Unplug from the virtual and look for the beauty of the real. Recognize and and, and just soak in the fact when you gather together, I am more than flesh and blood. The Spirit of God dwells in me. Baptism is more than water. Communion is more than bread and wine. Christ is present in his Spirit in these signs that we receive. This is, in a very real sense, an enchanted place where there is a halo of heaven beneath the surface of every earthly thing. This is no ordinary gathering. Each week, you look at what happens here, recognize the glory and the beauty of God beneath the surface of flesh and blood and water and bread and wine. Recognize that. That the Spirit of God is present and working in beautiful ways. Let that wonder flow into the rest of your life until you start to notice the beauty and the wonder of the things around you. Stop and stare at the infinite beauty of a blade of grass. Feel small beneath the stars. Get misty-eyed over the beauty of a sunset. Recognize, recognize by practicing it here week by week the wonder and the beauty that surrounds us. Here's something I find in my own life. When I become awake to wonder, I also became become awake to sorrow and pain. I think we do. Where we become more sensitive to the people around us. We recognize more deeply the sorrow and the pain that they're going through. When we recognize wonder and awe around us, it helps us to lament well with one another. It makes us stronger. This Sunday is often called Epiphany Sunday. The word epiphany simply means revealing or unveiling. Revealing. It's because it's the Sunday on which we celebrate the coming of the wise men to the manger or to the, to the house later. Missed enough my chronology there. To the home where Jesus and Mary and Joseph were, the coming of the wise men in which they saw a baby and they bowed down in wonder at the baby. God, even then, was all about revealing his glory through the ordinary. He still is. You, no offense, you don't look extraordinary. I don't either. None of us do. But God is making himself known through and in you. That's what God is up to. Practice wonder and awe every week as you look around you.
and let that bleed into the rest of your life until you see the presence, sense the presence of God in a way that will drive you to your knees in wonder. Sojourn, we partake of the Lord's Supper every week, remembering that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread. And he said to his followers, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said to them, take, drink all of it. This is my blood that is poured out for you. The way we do this at Sojourn is that we tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice or the wine. The wine is marked with twine. And as you come down the aisle, I want you to look around you and before you and recognize the wonder, the beauty of what happens week by week by week. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't want you to participate in this. It's not because we want to exclude you, but it's because we want to include you in Christ. We want to see you turn to Christ. Trust in him. Be glad to talk with you and show you how to trust your soul to Christ, to be made right with God, to prepare you that once you have received Christ, to receive this, this meal and to understand not only the meal, but also the meaning behind it. Let's pray.